Welcome to Samford University's Campus Worship. We hope you enjoy the presentation. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning, and thanks to Dr. Curlin for his invitation to uh, come and open the Word of God today. We're uh, in John chapter 13, and so if you have your Bibles with you or want to grab the one in the uh, pew there in front, we'll be looking at the first 17 verses of John 13. And this is, if you study the Gospel of John, this is the beginning of a new section. The previous 12 chapters, John has really been telling us all about Jesus' earthly ministry, his public ministry. And then at the beginning of verse, uh, at the beginning of chapter 13, it's a new part of the story. It's the beginning of the end. Uh, chapters 13 through 17, that five chapter block is all one discourse. It was the upper room discourse. Jesus, the Last Supper, gathered with his disciples before his betrayal and his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion. And so we're here at the beginning of that last evening that Jesus shared with his disciples. Listen now as I read for us God's word, beginning in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper... When the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you all are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that's why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant's not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. May God bless the reading of his word. Well, from your studies in literature in high school and hopefully here at Samford, you know the value in writing a good story of 
helping to create in the reader's mind a picture of the scene, of what's going on, of even what's in some of the characters' minds, what they're thinking that's behind their actions and their words. And John here does a masterful job of setting the scene. He takes the first three verses to tell us about what time it is, to tell us a little bit about what was on Jesus' mind, what he knew, and then ultimately to tell us what Jesus did. He first tells us about what time it was. He says it was the time of the Feast of Passover, the time when the Jews would gather together in Jerusalem to celebrate what God had done long ago in the life of Israel when they were in bondage in Egypt and God sent the angel of death as a judgment upon the Egyptians, but to preserve and deliver his people, he had them to slaughter an unblemished lamb and to take the blood and to put it over the doorpost of their home so that the angel of death would pass over them. And by that act of deliverance, the people were saved and brought to the promised land as they journeyed from Egypt. John tells us it was supper time. They had gathered for the meal that would reenact that feast of preparation for the journey where they would cook unleavened bread, where they would roast the, the lamb that had been slain and would eat it and would tell the story of the great thing God had done to deliver his people. This was not just any supper time, not just a Passover supper time, it was Jesus' last supper, his last meal to fellowship with these men who he had spent the last three years with. But most significantly, John tells us that it was time for Jesus to die. The opening verse says, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world. Things had gotten real. The time had now brought everything to this, and he knew what the events of the next 24 hours would involve as he made his way to the cross. Then John tells us a little bit about what was on Jesus' mind, what he knew as he entered into this occasion. It says first that Jesus knew that Judas would betray him. Imagine that experience of gathering there for this time of intimate fellowship, knowing that one among the group has already had it placed in his heart to betray his Lord, that he would sell him out for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus sat at the table with his own betrayer, not knowing what was in his heart and what he was resolved to do. Jesus also knew, it says, that the Father had placed all things in his hands. In, in aviation language, you've heard when a plane is, is landing on an aircraft carrier, you've got the ball. It's all in your hands. Everything was now in Jesus' hands to choose to willingly lay down his life. The Father had provided everything for him and brought him to this place but now it was his choice. It was his decision. And then last he tells us that Jesus knew he had come from God and would be returning to God. That may be the most important piece of information that he had. He knew where he was from. He knew who he was. He knew that he was, as we just sang, loved by the Father so greatly. And he knew that no matter what happened, his destiny 
was back with the father. There was a lot of pain, a lot of agony, suffering to go through between here and there, but Jesus knew, and so should we, that no matter what life brings, that we, when we are in Christ, we know where our home is. We know where we're going. And so based on what Jesus knew, this is what he did. He rose, he laid aside his garment, he put on a towel, he knelt, and he washed their feet. And then after he was finished, Jesus sat back down and he asked a question. It was a rhetorical question, not one that he literally expected answers from the disciples to, but he said, do you understand what I've done to you? You know how sometimes in, in one of your classes, a teacher will ask a, a question and, uh, and expect responses from the, from the students. And the response is, there's no one right answer. And so different students give different responses. And each one is right, correct in its own way. But some get more to the heart of the matter than, than others. Well, I, I would like to suspend uh, imagination here for a time and, and think about if this had not been a rhetorical question. If the disciples had raised their hands and said, you know, I, I, have, I have a response. I can think of at least four things that they might have said in response. Do you understand what I have done to you? I think the first and most basic answer one would have given would have been, you washed our feet? Yes, that's right. In the ancient Near East, this was a common practice of, of hospitality, that if you were a guest in someone's home, it was almost rude or unthinkable that the host would not provide foot washing for you as you reclined at the table, but the host was never the one typically to do that. It was always the work of a slave, one of the household slaves who would do that menial task. Well, that explains somewhat Peter's objection when Jesus came to him to wash his feet and said, oh no, Lord, you're, you are going to wash my feet? That was just a social faux pas. That was, that was just not within his comprehension that his Lord and Master, that his host in so many ways would lower himself to that place to serve him that way. That he would rise from supper and leave the head of the table, the established place of honor befitting his status, and would then join with the rest of them and kneel at their feet. That he would take off his robe and put on the apparel of a slave. They were so much more class conscious than we could ever even begin to imagine being in our day of what you did based on who you were. And this was not what the master, the Lord and teacher did. And Peter was aghast that Jesus would do this, wash his dirty feet. But it was an expression of Jesus' humility, a beautiful expression of Jesus' humility. That the Lord of creation who laid aside the glory of his heavenly realm and 
came down and took on the form, as Paul says in Philippians 2, of, a, of, of humanity, who more than that took on the role of a servant and was obedient and suffered even to the point of death and death on a cross. That humility is prefigured here as Jesus washed the disciples' feet. It was also, in its own way, a beautiful act of hospitality. This was not Jesus' home. Jesus didn't own a home, but it was Jesus' world. And as he washed the disciples' feet, it was the host of heaven, the host of earth, showing hospitality, love, warmth to those who were his guests. Yes, it's the right answer, Jesus washed their feet, but it's the most basic one. Because the second answer that one of them might have given was, you've given us an example to follow. Jesus said in verses 14 and 15, if I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I've given you an example that you should also do just as I've done to you. So was it the example of foot washing specifically that Jesus was calling them to, to observe? Or was foot washing just a symbol for something greater? Christians through the years have kind of had different interpretations of this. Foot washing came to be a practice among Christians as early, we know, uh, as the, the early 4th and 5th centuries. Augustine writes about foot washing as a regular part of the Easter baptism service. And then later on in our own uh, more modern period in the 18th century, 19th century, there, there were the General and Free Will Baptists who uh, some of you may have known or heard talked about as foot washing Baptists uh, who considered foot washing a sacred ordinance. That's the kind of language we use for the Lord's Supper and for baptism. It's something we're commanded to do and it has sacred meaning and value. And there are churches and, and Christians even today who still practice foot washing, especially on Maundy Thursday. Some of you may have uh, experienced that yourself. But more broadly, Jesus called them, and he calls you and me, to lives of humble service. He turned upside down the conventional wisdom of service that was based on status, on who you were and what you did and didn't do. When you stop and think about that term that Jesus, the Father, had given all things into Jesus' hands, that he could do whatever he wanted to, and what did he choose to do? To take up a towel and to kneel down and wash the feet of his disciples. Some among the disciples, you may know, were bad about jockeying for position, arguing about who would be greatest in Jesus' kingdom when it came. In Luke's account of this same night, Luke tells us that Jesus rebuked them and said, let the greatest among you become like the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. For I, Jesus, am among you as one who serves. So let me put the question to you today in light of this answer. He gave us an example to follow. What are you doing with all that God has placed in your hands? Jesus leads the way. He shows us that he had all authority, all prerogative, all discretion, all freedom. And he chose to use that in the form of service. 
to humble himself and to serve and bless others. And having been served so greatly, so graciously as we have been by one who is far greater than any of us, how will you and I do as he has done unto us? How will we show that same humility and hospitality to others? But if the message or messages that we take away from this text is simply the virtues of foot washing or the nobility of service, we will have left a lot of meat on the table because that's not what this is all about, as important as those messages are. A third answer gets a lot closer to the heart of the matter. That would have been the disciple who raised his hand and said, you made us clean. His dialogue with Simon Peter, starting at verse 6, Peter objected to the washing and Jesus said, what I'm doing now you can't understand, but later you will. And he said, you'll never wash my feet, objecting again. And Jesus said, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. That sounds simple enough, then not just my feet, wash the whole of me. Jesus said, no, you really kind of missed the point, Peter, because the one who has been bathed from head to toe doesn't need additional washing. I know they had to sort of furrow their brow at Jesus sometimes and think, what is he talking about? But it's one more thing that they would understand later on, that Jesus was not just talking about washing in a ceremonial way, was not just talking about foot washing, was not just talking about service and, and humility. He was talking about redemption, salvation, atoning for the sin that was the sickness of all mankind and still is. That Jesus, by his blood, made clean all who would put their trust in him. In the beginning of John's gospel, in chapter 1, we're told that uh, that when Jesus came to the Jordan River for baptism, where John the Baptist was, that John, when he first saw Jesus coming, said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now at the beginning of this new section of John's Gospel, we have the feast of the Passover, the time when the Lamb would be slain, remembering that, that process and how God atoned for the sins of the people by their sacrifices then, but Jesus now is that perfect lamb. Jesus is the one who was slain and whose blood atones for all of us, for all times, in all places. The writer of Hebrews made that idea of Jesus as the perfect lamb, Jesus as the, the high priest, a, a theme of, of his writing in he said there in chapter 9, verses 12 through 14, that Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the bloods of, uh, blood of animals, securing an eternal redemption, but by his own blood. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with animal blood and the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ 
who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how will it not purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He made us clean. Service just for service sake, while it's a great idea, is made something so much more when we are clean by the blood of Christ. Because our message is not just that there's hope by the, this form of service, there's hope by that form of charity, but that there is hope that transcends life and even death by the saving blood of Jesus Christ. He made them clean. But then there would be one final answer. And that would have been maybe the most profound of all. The one who would say, you have loved us. In the very first verse of the passage, Jesus, knowing that his time had come to depart out of this world, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That translation there may be a little different in some of your Bibles, but that word in the Greek, to the end, is, is, is eis telos, which can mean to the goal or to the finish line, but also can have the idea of perfectly or completely to the uttermost. And I really like that translation even better, that Jesus, having loved them as much as he did already, now showed them the full extent of his love. And it wasn't just in the foot washing, but it was in what the foot washing prefigured that he would take off his royal robes, that he would leave his appointed place, and that he would be stretched out on a cross. And there he would suffer and he would die for the sins of the world, for you and for me. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And this is love, not that God, not that we have loved God, but that he has first loved us. It's all about his love. Foot washing is a nice and meaningful ceremony. Humble service is an example Jesus has called us to follow. But being cleaned, cleansed, purified, made right in the eyes of God by his blood atoning for our sins and knowing the full extent of his love, that's what's really going on here. And if we don't know that love in a, a personal way, if we don't serve others out of that love, knowing that we've been loved so greatly, we have been forgiven so much, and therefore we follow Christ's example to love others, to serve them, to bless them in his name. That's real service. That's what makes people more than just clean feet, but gives them clean hearts and a hope that this world cannot take away. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them.
Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are mindful that Jesus was more than just a good example. He was Savior. And that he is alive today making intercession for us at your right hand. And he is coming again. Oh Lord, renew and sustain our hope. Motivate us by your love to serve our world in Jesus' name. Not that we might be seen as great or as beneficent, but that he might be seen as Lord of all. We love you and we thank you in his name. For more information about Samford University, check out samford.edu.